Hey, thank you, Kevin. Well, this week turned out to me to be the week of working in the yard. And how many of you have made that turn where you're actually mowing the yard now? Have we turned that corner? Yep. How many are loving it? Right? Yep. The six of you are loving it. All right. So at the end of the season last fall, I saw a small hole beginning to open up in our yard. It was about this size or so, not any bigger than maybe uh, a cantaloupe. I don't know. Anyway. And I, I don't know why I came up with cantaloupe. Anyway. <laughs> But that might be true. But anyway, uh, I let it go because I didn't seem like a big deal. And with winter coming and the ground freezing, I thought, you know, whatever. It is what it is. I don't really feel like dealing with it. And and now come springtime, uh, we live in a property that also doubles as a swamp, which is kind of nice. If you're a swamp creature, then it's a great place to be because it's completely wet. We have groundwater at three feet at our uh, level there. So that's a little bit of a problem in times like this where it's rainy and kind of cloudy. So as I looked out to my hole that had grown from a cantaloupe to about a dozen cantaloupes is what it looked like. I couldn't actually tell how deep this baby was because the, the water was just set, set there and stagnated, but it was bigger than I think it should have been. My wife actually mowed the lawn before I did, and she was afraid to go near it lest she fall in, which was amazing and might have swallowed her up. So I decided I'm going to go out there and, and fix the problem. I go out there with my shovel to start kind of seeing where we're at, and I just decided to clear out some of the water. I clear out some of the water on the top, and then I realized pretty quickly, like, I need to stop because there's no point anymore because my underground swamp thing that's only three feet is actually maybe only six inches below the surface, and it's just filling with water. I, I, there's no way I'm going to get rid of it. So we have a little pile of dirt on our little, we call it the family compound, a little pile of dirt. So we go, I go to the pile of dirt, fill up the wheelbarrow, and I think one good wheelbarrow fill should do it. So I take the, the dirt over, and I basically dump it in, and it disappears. Like, well, that was awesome. Wheelbarrow number two I bring over. By bring over, I mean, you know, anyway, work hard, get it over there, and, and there goes dirt number two, wheelbarrow number two, gone into the abyss. I'm like, this is great. I go back and get wheelbarrow number three, bring it over, and then it begins to settle up to the top. And then I get wheelbarrow number four over. Now I'm four wheelbarrows full of dirt in a hole that I thought was about a cantaloupe size, okay? And I drop it in, and now if you're my neighbor, it looks really fun now because I've become the human tamper. Okay? I'm tamping this thing down by jumping on it. I, I had no other tamping option, so I'm jumping on the center of it to push it out, and then it's squishy. I'm half falling in, half not. Go, need another wheelbarrow full. By the time I'm done, I have six wheelbarrows full of dirt in this hole that I thought was maybe, maybe, maybe one good solid wheelbarrow full of dirt. Now, I don't know that I did that right at all. In fact, it could be that by tomorrow, uh, I'm going to have that same single open up again. And you might tell me, Tim, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing with landscaping, to which I would say you're probably right. Um, and I probably look like a moron jumping on top of the, the yard with all that mud and stuff, but I had no idea what else to do. And, and here's my point. Sometimes, sometimes, things are deeper than we think they are. <laughs> Sometimes things are deeper than we think they are. And from my cute little vantage point in the inside of the house, looking out over the surface of that little hole in the water on it, I had no idea how deep it was until I began to fill this thing up. And then I realized, shoot, this thing is way deeper and the problem is way bigger than actually I first thought it was. And, and many of life's topics and issues are like that. Once you start getting into them, you realize, whoa, this is deeper than I thought. The things that are going on here are deeper than I thought. The issues are more complex than I thought and the opportunities are more significant than I thought. And when you think about the good news, and you think about the good news in the context of the church world, the good news, I want to suggest to you, is actually maybe deeper than you think. Now, by good news, maybe you've come to 
be in a spot where you've grown up with, you've experienced the good news is this, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Which is great and true, but what if it's deeper than that? What if the good news that, yes, Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins and to forgive you, what if that is the good news? Yes, but what if that hole, if you will, is much deeper than you actually thought it was? What if there's more to it than you ever thought there was? And what if that could actually radically change how you see yourself before God and before others? What if the good news is way deeper than you thought it was? And I'd like to suggest this morning this, that that some of us have grown up with a view of how to approach God that is fundamentally flawed but rarely questioned. I'd like to suggest, and you may be in this category this morning, you may not be, you get to decide whether you are or not, that I think some of us have grown up with a view of how we approach God that is actually fundamentally flawed, but rarely questioned, because so many of us agree with it in principle without engaging it. And so to get into this this morning, I want to share a story with you. It's a story that's found um, in the Bible and in a um, letter or a what we call a gospel written by a guy named Luke, and Luke decided that he was going to write down the record of Jesus' account so that later on we would have what he called an orderly account, so that people who questioned, or the critics, that Jesus really walked the planet, that he would write it down in, in order so that it could be fact-checked. You could look back and say, oh, that's what Jesus did, that's when he did it, and that's who he did it with, and that's where he did it. Okay, all right, cool, thanks, Luke. So he writes the account, and it's actually, he tells a story in it, and it's one of Jesus' parables, one of the parables that you probably know, even if you are not in church, even if you don't read the Bible or whatever, you probably know this story. And because it's so well known, what I'm going to do a little different this morning is I want to read it to you from a different translation of the Bible. So the, tra- uh, the different, it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. I'm going to read to you from the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, a story that I am sure that all of you have heard at one point in your life or another. And so just listen to this story, if you will, and we're going to pick it up on the back end of the story as we open up the idea of how do we approach God and is it possible that there are different ways to approach him at all. So here's the story in Luke chapter 15, verses 12 to 32. Then Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything that he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry that he would have eaten even the corn cobs in the pig slop but no one would give him any. And that brought him to his senses, and he said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up and went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him, and the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God, I've sinned before you, I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast, we're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, and now alive. 
given up for lost and now found, and they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing, calling over one of the houseboys. He asked him what was going on. And he told him, your brother came home and your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I have been staying here to serve you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? I mean, this son of yours who who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. This is a story that Jesus tells. The people who are wondering about the value of that which is lost. And in this story, the story of what you know is now the prodigal son story. You've heard that story. You've heard that accounting before in different ways. That there are two sons in the story. You have the younger son and you have the older son. And the younger son represents, basically I'm going to say that the younger son represents one approach to God that I'm going to call irreligion. The, younger, the older son represents another approach to God called religion. The younger son represents a, a, an approach to God that says, God, you must have something... Uh, you know, a, a set of rules, a weight, whatever it is that I'm not sure I can follow or want to follow. And so the younger son represents all that is rebellion, all that is going the wrong way. What the younger son does to his dad is essentially say, Dad, um, it is more worth it to me to take the things that I would get now when you die. So if you don't mind that, I'm going to act like you're dead so I can get the things that you have because your things are more worth it to me than you are, and I'm going to take your things and go have my life. And that represents full-on rebellion from the father. Irreligion, if you will. The older son represents something else and represents something completely different. And the older son, in our story, the older son is pictured at the end of the story working hard in the field all day and for years, whatever years that the younger son was away in his rebellion. The older son is actually staying home. He's, he's got a strong work ethic. I mean, he gets up and he takes care of the fields. He has people who are under him and he's doing an incredible job. But in the story, in the story, he's annoying, isn't he? I mean, in the story, he's arrogant. I mean, in the story... Is he one that you would look at and say, man, I want to I model my life after the older son? I mean, I, he's a guy, I mean, I know he's kind of a jerk. I mean, look how selfish he is, but he, he's the guy that I'd love to model my life after. Here's the interesting thing about the story of the prodigal son. Many of us don't take a moment to stop and think, what happens, what happens if this parable were actually real? Many of us can celebrate, hoorah, the rebellious kid came back and is now going to what? We assume that, the, here, here's the beauty of it, the younger son came back and now, what would happen a month from now or a year from now? Is the younger son now going to walk the straight and narrow? Is that the rest of the story? Is the younger son now going to turn into the 
older son? Is that what we want? Is that what we assume in this story? Because the older son is the one who's been following the straight and narrow. And he's a jerk. He's arrogant. It's all about him. It's all about what is owed to me. And so what do we want the younger son to become? Not just that he came back to the father, but what do we want him to develop into? And the unspoken assumption is, hey, when the people who are rebellious come back to the father, now they can line up with all the good older sons who are already in the family. And the older son is not a flattering image in the story of the prodigal son. The older son is to be avoided as much as the younger son. You want to have dinner with the older son? You want to have him to your party? You want to go have a drink with him? You don't want to do those things. He's not the kind of guy that you would want to do that with. So there's a third aspect here. When you think about how do we approach God, there are many people who will look to God, and maybe this has been your background, your experience, I'm sure you know people like this, and say, you know, the weight of following God is too much. I'm going to rebel, I'm going to move from God. I'm sure he has some ethical, moral principles, whatever. That is what it is, but I'm going to live my life the best I can, and he's basically as good as dead to me. I'm going to kind of live over here. And then there's people also who approach God the other way. I'm going to obey the heck out of it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to line it up morally and ethically. I'm going to be right in line. I'm going to be clean. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to follow God with everything that I have. And then God's going to owe me what he owes me. And we turn into the older son. And there's a third character in the story. The third character in the story is the father who demonstrates what the grace of the gospel really is. The father is the hero of the story, not the younger son, and certainly not the older son. The father The father is the one who is the reason the younger son comes back, right? The father's grace is what draws the younger son, not the obedience of the older son. The father represents in this story grace as a teacher. The father takes the grace of the gospel and says to the son, I see you coming from a long way off, the the younger son. I'm going to come and I'm going to run to you. I'm going to invite you back to the family. Grace as a teacher for the irreligious is an invitation to the heart of the Father. For those of us, and all of us have been in the category of being rebellious and pushing back against God, every time we do that, the Father's grace is an invitation teaches us there is grace to be found in this space. Have you blown it? Yep. Have you rebelled against me? Yes. Have you wished I was dead? Yep. Have you considered me worthless? Yes. Let me invite you back in any way. (laughs) That's the grace of the Father teaching us. But the grace of the Father also engages the older son. The grace of the Father engages the older son differently. The grace of the Father challenges the older son. The grace of the father looks to the oldest son and says, son, I know that you've been here. I know that. I know that you've been here, but you don't get it. You have had the benefit of this family every day that you have been here. And I want to challenge you. I want to instruct you. I want to correct your thinking to understand that the very reason that you are here is the very reason the younger brother is here, because you both are under the grace and mercy of me as your father. You aren't here because you're awesome. And your younger brother is in here because he's awesome. You are both here because I have invited and I want to instruct you in the language and in the worldview of what grace of the gospel, the good news, means. Later on in the New Testament, in a little letter that Paul, who's a follower of Jesus, later on follower of Jesus, 
he writes to a guy named Titus. Here's what Paul has to say in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, as he fleshes this out for us a little bit. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And then look what, look what happens next. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What Paul is telling us and taking this, I believe, from Jesus' very words and teaching is that grace, if you can imagine personified grace as a teacher, grace teaches us. It is grace. It is the teacher. Grace comes in and teachers, good teachers, mess with you a little bit. They challenge you a little bit. They cast vision a little bit. They say, let me help you rethink your very assumptions of how you think you approach God. And it teaches us. See, grace teaches us to change our lives. The most religious people, and and I would consider my upbringing and my default behavior to be among the older brother, my cards on the table. I have approached God that way for many, many a year. The older brother tendency, the older brother tendency is to say, man, let's get it right, let's figure out the rules, and let's live accordingly. Grace is this teacher that says, you know what, I do want you to live right. I I want you to live morally and ethically, but here's the key. Why you live that way is equally as important as that you live that way. Why you live that way is equally as important as that you live that way. And grace teaches us. Grace is the thing that teaches us to change our behavior. Grace is the thing that teaches us to move the way we think ethically and morally. Grace is the thing. And so if you have felt, if you've grown up at home, and you have felt the weight of moral rules on you without grace as the underpinning of that, you have gotten something, but you haven't gotten the gospel. You've gotten something, but you haven't gotten the good news of Jesus. If you've grown up in a home where you feel like, oh, the weight of religion is serious, like I don't know if I can do it, and you've felt that pressure, then you're getting something, but you're getting religion. You're not getting the grace that is the teacher. Grace teaches us. Grace teaches us to say no to things and yes to others. It isn't the weight of religion. And here's what happens. If you can imagine a a welding torch for a minute, Imagine your, your heart like the, the steel that needs to be bent under the heat of the welding torch. Imagine trying to bend that steel without the heat of that. It's nearly impossible. You can for a little bit, but you better get out of the shop soon because the weight of that is going to snap back and someone is going to lose an eye or an arm in the process of that steel, that metal slapping right back to where it should be. And for many of us, our hearts are like that. When we try to change the heart of our children or the heart of myself without the welding torch of grace to melt my heart at key junctures so I turn correctly and stay in place, I snap back because of the weight of religion. I can't hold it for that many years. I can't be that consistent. I can't be that strong. I can't keep listening. I can't stop. I can't, I can't because my heart hasn't been warmed by the grace of the welding torch of the good news of Jesus, because that's what grace does. It teaches me, it melts my heart to soften it, to move me in a direction where I should go. This is what the Father's grace does. This is what has drawn the younger son back home. Paul goes on later in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, and he says it again, that he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Again, we are saved by the mercy of God. 
not because of our morality or because we've been good older brothers or good religious people. Here's a danger that I want you to know about, and I love the way Tim Keller puts it, and so many of my thoughts have been impacted by Keller. We'll, we'll share more about that in a minute. As you think about the, the good news of the gospel and coming to know that Jesus actually loves you and died on the cross for you, like many of us have come, many of us have come to see to know the gospel, and then moved from that space. And here's what Keller will say, that many of us come to the gospel, but the gospel almost always leads to religion. Okay? The gospel almost always leads to religion, not, not all the time. In other words, we come and we hear a message, I mean, it's awesome. Like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me, that's pretty cool. I mean, I can do whatever I want and be forgiven, that's awesome. God has got a mercy, yep, he sure is. And then we're saved unto what? The question is, where does the younger brother go? The younger brother, does he become the older brother? Because that is the world of religion, and that is where most people put the younger brother. Hoorah, he came home, good. Now he can line up and behave. That'd be awesome. But we failed to read the last part of the story in which the, younger, the older brother is a jerk. Like, I don't want the younger brother to grow up to become the older brother. That's not a good story. I don't want the, I don't want the gospel to turn into religion, because here's the problem. When we move into religion, religion almost never leads back to the gospel. Once we get into the world... <laughs> of the weight of rules and regulations and obedience driving our behavior. It's almost impossible to get back to the gospel. And the reason for that is because of the self-centeredness of what happens when we try to perform for God. C.S. Lewis has a little work he called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, he writes a great... uh, great little book about how our hearts and souls engage God and, and the, uh, the interest and the intent of uh, Satan uh, and his demons to kind of move things in a spiritual realm in a different way. And in that, he writes about religion and the weight of religion, the weight of obedience and rules. He writes about that. And here's what he says about religion that becomes so self-centered that I must obey. I must be driven in a relationship with God to obey him. And here's what he says this, this way, that religion like this continues to nurture the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self that is the mark of hell. It's kind of heavy. (laughs) Kind of heavy for a Sunday morning. I think he's right. That religion like this, religion like this, continues to nurture, this is a ruthless, this is a ruthless characteristic. It is, it is sleepless. It never rests. It is an unsmiling, never happy with yourself concentration on yourself because you're always messing up your own standards. You can never be as perfect and awesome as you want other people to think you are. It is this unsmiling, sleepless, relentless concentration on self, which is the mark of hell, Lewis writes. <laughs> this isn't about the grace of the Father anymore. This is about the obedience of the older son. This is about snapping that metal into place without heating it with the grace of the gospel. It is unfortunately a false assumption that many of us have been raised with, that few of us have engaged, potentially, that changes the way that we see how we even relate to God, that maybe for you, I hope, deepens your understanding of the good news that, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but he still loves me even when I come to his home, if you will, to be under the grace of the Father. To flesh this out for you a little bit, I was trying to wrestle with how in the world do I I bring this down closer and help us kind of wrestle with this more? And so I decided to go for um, a handout. 
this is true, okay? You will find in the pew on the outside near the, uh, the ends here, you'll find a manila folder tucked in in front of or behind the hymn books there. That's, people wonder why we have a hymn book. Now you know. To hold up the manila folder for the handouts we have. You are welcome. All right, if you can grab a handout and pass it down your aisle, this is um, something that I would love for you to have and take with you. And this is going to nuance for you what I mean when I talk about the difference between gospel-centered life and a religious-centered life. And here's what I want for you before you start reading that for a minute. So once you hand that out, just look here just for one second before you start reading that. Good, half of you listened, half of you didn't. That's okay. I can tell who the older brothers are and who the younger ones are already in the room. That's awesome. That's fine. Uh, we're going to read through it here together in a second. Um, but I want this to be a, a, a thing that you can take home with you and that it can actually, you can have a moment, if you will, with the truth of this thing or engage this, and you can look at it and say, I don't know, is this true or is this not true? This is an attempt to nuance, how do I know if my life, if, how do I know if I'm responding to who God is through the grace of the Father or through the religion of the older brother? And so here's how Keller writes it. Now we can all look and have our curiosity, um, you know, satisfied. Looking at the chart, for example, and this is again, this is coming from Tim Keller's uh, Center Church book, credit at the bottom of that. Religion approaches God this way, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel approaches it this way, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Whoopsie, here we go. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity, and motivation in the gospel is based on grateful joy. In religion... I obey God in order to get things from God. And in the gospel, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. A gospel approach says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that while God may allow this for my training... He will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. In religion, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. In the gospel, when I am criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. In religion, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I am in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control circumstances. In the gospel, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration, and my main purpose is fellowship with him. In religion, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But, when I am prone, uh, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble, but not confident. I feel like a failure. In the gospel, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am at once sinful and lost, yet accepted. I am so bad that he had to die for me and so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper humility as well as deeper confidence without either sniveling or swaggering. In religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. 
So I must look down on those I perceive to be lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. In the gospel, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. In religion, since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them. So they are my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I say, I believe about God. For the gospel, I have many good things in my life, family, work, etc. But none of these good things are ultimate things to me. I don't absolutely have to have them, so there's a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. And so when I say to you, I'm, what I say to you, I'm also saying to me that how you approach God, as maybe some of you have had the experience of the younger brother in rebellion and moving away from him. Maybe you've been drawn to come back to the grace of the Father. But some of us maybe by default have turned into the older brother because now we're home. And what do people do who live in the Father's home? But they go to work in the field every day because that's what needs to be done. The work needs to be done. And we move into obedience. We move into religion. And forget this very important thing that you may have seen here, that we come running home because of the grace of the Father, not the religion of the older brother. Right? The reason the younger brother wanted to come home, what went through his mind when he was slopping away with the pigs, it wasn't. It wasn't because I can't wait to be like my older brother. It wasn't because I can't wait to do all the work that needs to be done for my father. It wasn't that at all. It was the grace of the father that drew him home. And so I don't know what you see when you look at the, the good news. If you look at that hole and you see, like I did, a hole that seems to be maybe this wide, maybe cantaloupe size, maybe two. What if it's deeper than that? What if it's deeper than that? What if the good news, what if the grace of the gospel changes everything about how you see yourself and how you relate to your heavenly father? How you relate to your children, how you parent, how you lead, your business, and your families. Because this is the draw, this is the call of why Jesus told this story in the first place. That all who want would come Come to the grace of the Father, not to the obedience of the older son or the rebellion of the younger son, but come and see the good news of the gospel. So if you have a moment, I'd encourage you to take this sheet this week. Take some private time with this thing and ask yourself the question, where's my heart at? Where have I come to? And where have I now gone? And what needs to be changed? What needs to be started? What needs to be stopped? What needs to be increased or decreased in my life? in light of a reminder that we have been drawn by the grace of the Father, not the obedience of the older brother. Next week, I'm looking forward to part three of this series, where we're going to see through the Old Testament that the good news has always meant to be great news in time and space history, that everyone who lives around people who are Christians should say, man, I am glad that Christians live here, because this place is better because of them. Looking forward to that next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning, and I pray that you would 
continue to move and work in our hearts to help us see how we even approach you. I pray that you would take the welder's torch of grace and warm us again where our hearts maybe have been hardened, where we've been forced to feel like we must conform, we must obey, we must change. That the grace would be our teacher, would challenge us, motivate us, and also invite us to see what that younger son saw when he was slopping with the pigs. That there is a father whose grace is so robust and so inviting that to neglect it would be foolishness. And I pray that you would help us in this room who have older brother syndrome, who are used to obedience, regulations and rules and keeping things just right that you would warm our hearts with the grace of the gospel too. That we would approach you, not through our obedience, but through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, who drew us to yourself. And so I pray you do that work in us this week, that you'd help us to see where we're raising our kids, maybe off to the one side and maybe in a wrong direction, or how we're serving in our marriage, maybe in one way we shouldn't be, or leading our business, or working with our classmates, I pray that you would help us to see how can we be people of good news who are children of the Father, an incredibly gracious heart. We love you. We thank you for the time we could share together. In Jesus' name, amen.